Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Well, um, I just did Megan Kelly's podcast yesterday. And uh, I like Megan. She has always treated me extremely fairly, even though she has a very different audience that would incentivize her to treat me unfairly. That strikes me as a bit of a high-wire act. So I was happy to talk to her. And um, you can see the results over on her channel. In any case, Megan asked me about the recent incident with the Dalai Lama, which uh, I suppose I should comment on here. You can hear what I said to her, but um, I'll just more or less repeat that here. I hadn't really thought to react to this, but it's understandable that people would be curious to know what I think. My history, obviously, with Buddhism and with Vajrayana Buddhism goes way back. I've met the Dalai Lama on a number of occasions and briefly functioned as a bodyguard for him for about a month when he toured France. So I traveled with him to, I don't know, about a dozen cities or more over the course of a month and got to see how he functioned with many different groups of people and was never less than thoroughly impressed by him as a person. Uh, This was, I think, over 30 years ago at this point, but found him to be, as advertised, just an extraordinarily present, compassionate, and wise man. I can't say he was really a teacher of mine. I never studied with him in any sense. I studied with several lamas who he considered teachers, Dilgal Kensin Rinpoche, Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, and perhaps others were I'm unaware of the connection. So, what to say about this recent incident? If you haven't heard, there's a video that has now widely been circulated and commented upon of the Dalai Lama teaching in front of an audience and being asked by a young Indian boy if he could hug him. And uh, once that hug takes place, The Dalai Lama asks for a kiss on the cheek and then a kiss on the mouth. uh, And then he sticks his tongue out and asks the boy to suck his tongue, which the boy doesn't do. And this has been widely perceived as not only bewildering, but totally inappropriate. I certainly understand that reaction with an emphasis, I think, on the bewildering part. Uh, It's certainly not appropriate. But as I told Megan, I I find it hard to believe that the Dalai Lama was trying to gratify a sexual urge with a child in front of hundreds of people. So in my view, the behavior would have even been more concerning had it occurred in private. But still, it was bizarre. It's true that Tibetans sometimes greet one another by sticking out their tongues. And I suppose there's something that could make sense of this as a joke. But from the video, it really did seem that the Dalai Lama gave this boy ample opportunity to actually suck his tongue, which makes it hard to interpret as a joke. Anyway, I'm inclined to ascribe this to some form of brain damage on the Dalai Lama's part. He is an 87-year-old man. Whether what's going on in his brain has simply made him less censored in front of an audience, and this is some window onto how he's behaved privately with kids, I don't know. But in any case, I'm not inclined to say anything to defend his behavior 
except to say that if he does have some relevant form of brain damage, it would explain it. Otherwise, I have absolutely no idea what was going on there. And it's just quite unfortunate because the man had an absolutely stellar reputation. I guess it remains to be seen whether this will mar his legacy permanently. It doesn't take much more than a moment to change everyone's view of who you are as a person. And needless to say, that's worth keeping in mind. Okay. And now for today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Matt Thornton. Matt has been teaching martial arts for more than 30 years, and he holds a fifth-degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. His organization, Straight Blast Gym, has more than 70 locations worldwide and has produced champion MMA fighters, as well as world-class self-defense and law enforcement instructors. And he lives with his wife and five children in Portland, Oregon. And Matt has long been one of my go-to authorities on all things related to martial arts and self-defense. As many of you know, I've touched this topic a few times on the podcast. I've spoken to Gavin DeBecker and Jocko Willink and Scott Reitz about many topics related to self-defense and understanding violence. And now I have finally done it with Matt. And we talk about his new book titled The Gift of Violence, Practical Knowledge for Surviving and Thriving in a Dangerous World. We discuss his background in martial arts, the reasons a person might want to train in combat sports, the UFC and the evolution of mixed martial arts, the fundamental principles of effective self-defense, the street versus sport fallacy, grappling versus striking, the persistence of fake martial arts, Bruce Lee's legacy, male violence and emotional maturity, the male fear of humiliation, violence against women, the validity of our instincts when judging danger, the behavior of predators, weapons, avoiding violence, and other topics. Anyway, it was a pleasure to finally get Matt on the podcast. I hope you find our conversation useful. And now I bring you Matt Thornton. I am here with Matt Thornton. Matt, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Sam. So you have long been my guru on uh, all things related to martial arts and violence, Brazilian jiu-jitsu in particular, but really you, you, you and I have discussed kind of everything related to self-defense. And I remember uh, urging you to write a book on this topic, and you have now done that. And it's, uh, congratulations, it's a wonderful book. Uh, the book is The Gift of Violence. Practical Knowledge for Surviving and Thriving in a Dangerous World. And um, it's really excellent. So uh, just congratulations. I know it took you a long time to produce, and it was worth the effort. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it took me about 10 years, but <laughs> I did get it done eventually. So let's just uh, go through this systematically, because you know, violence is a topic that I've touched a few times on the podcast. I, I've spoken to Jocko Willink. Mm-hmm. A Navy SEAL who has his own podcast, who many people will be familiar with. Uh, Scott Reitz and I spoke about firearms in particular. Uh, I spoke to uh, Henner Gracie about um, BJJ, and I, I guess I've probably had a few other conversations. But um, I'd like to take it from the top here and give people, insofar as it's possible, a comprehensive view of the topic of self-defense. 
Before we jump into the conversation proper, perhaps you can summarize your background here and, and how you come to know anything about this topic. Actually, your background is, in reading your book, I realized it started earlier than I recalled. I'm sure you told me about your childhood before, but I think I forgot the details. But your, your father was a police officer, right? Yes, so that, my, my father's a retired police a, officer, and my, uh, my mother was Jehovah's Witness. So there's a bit of contradiction right, right, going okay. up that way. Is that, uh, that produces uh, all manner of conflict, I would imagine. Exactly. Okay, so give me your, your background as a martial artist and as somebody who, who understands you know, interpersonal violence, uh, and then we'll hit the ground running. Well, I think like a lot of people, you know, I, I had some run-ins with bullying and things like that when I was little. I was an only child for the first 16 years of my life anyway, and um, my dad was a police officer. As I mentioned, my mom was very religious. So I had a kind of a contradiction in what I was being told, how, how to handle violent confrontations, how to handle situations like this. I was being told different things at different times, which I found a bit confusing. And I eventually uh, reached a point where I just started fighting back. And then I became fascinated uh, right around the same time with what works in fights and what doesn't work in fights. And that question of you know what martial arts are going to be effective, what tactics or things were actually effective against a fully resisting opponent was always front and center in my mind. And so um, when I went into martial arts, I went into martial arts very specifically to try and answer that question. And I talk a little bit about it in the book, but I started with uh, boxing and I boxed for a while. And then I became an instructor in what they call Jikundo Concepts, which is a kind of a cross-training makes martial arts sort of system where they were taking different pieces from different martial arts. I became pretty disillusioned with all martial arts and including that. But also that was Bruce Lee's yes. system, yeah. right? Bruce Lee's concept. And the idea yeah. was, which was a quote he'd actually taken from Mount Tung, but absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, add what is specifically your own. So it's kind of utilitarian approach to martial arts. It's le at least that's how it was advertised. And I was attracted to that aspect of it. But after getting to become an instructor and spend some time with those people for a couple of years, I started to get a little disillusioned and I saw a bit of hypocrisy. I saw them saying one thing to each other or, you know, amongst the coaches backstage, if you will, and then something completely different to the audience. And it was right around that time that I had a fortunate run-in with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So I've told this story a bunch of times, but it's kind of funny. Uh, Fabio Santos was up here in Portland and he was building sailboats and he wasn't teaching jiu-jitsu nobody really knew what brazilian jiu-jitsu was at the time and horian what, what year was this ah uh, this would have been very early 90s so 91 two somewhere B there. before the ufc which was yes. 93 yes so this is about a good year i'd say before the ufc and horian actually called up uh fabio and said i've got something big that's going to be happening and I'm going to need you as an instructor here, so you should get in shape. And what do you, the big thing that he was going to have happen was UFC. And since they've been running that experiment in Brazil for decades, they kind of knew what the results would be. And Fabio's way of getting in shape was to put an ad in a, in a classified newspaper here, offering to pay people $50 if they could uh, come and try and beat him up. Mm -hmm. And so my buddy and I from the boxing gym showed up. Um, predictable result of what would happen. He'd let me try and hit him, took me down, demonstrated jujitsu to me a few times. And then once he was clear, he could tell it was clear to me that what he was doing was working and there really wasn't anything I could do about it. He could see I was hooked. 
And uh, from that moment forward, I fell in love with jujitsu. And not too long after that, I also got to meet Hickson, which was a, a big eye opener as far as what the, what the art was capable of. And so Hickson Gracie, Hickson who Gracie, is yeah. often acknowledged to be the, the greatest jujitsu athlete of all time. Yeah, uh, I don't think there's any, any doubt about that. I, you know, the people who've been around and the world champions from that day and era, they all have stories about Hickson. And these are guys that aren't apt to, you know, make up martial arts mythologies. They're not going to talk about, you know, getting tapped out if they weren't actually tapped out. And, and Hickson just had an amazing, has an amazing level of skill. So I fell in love with it and I realized I needed to train it. And the people that I was training with at the JKD school weren't interested. They still had these ideas about how hard they would be to get taken down. Again, this was before the UFC. Um, how you don't want to be in a, on the ground in a fight, so why would you train to be on the ground in, in a fight, and so forth. And so I actually opened up a very small school for the sole purpose of having training partners. I had no intention mm -hmm. of becoming an instructor. And um, it, the gym just took off from there, fortunately. And this became your Straight Blast Gym? Yes. Came SPG Straight Blast Gym. It was a tiny little school in uh, Salem, Oregon, that I shared with a Judo Black Belt was a friend of mine. We brought Hickson up once. Hickson gave me my blue belt and told me at the time, I said, listen, I'm, I'm trying to train this every day. Uh, I have to teach what you show me so I can get training partners. He gave me permission at that time to teach what I know and my school, as long as I always called it, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that's how it all started. And then a few years after that, um, Hickson became very famous fighting in Japan, became hard to reach, hard to, get, hard to train with. And around that time, I met a mutual friend of ours, Chris Howder. Mm -hmm. And Chris became my coach from Purple, Brown, and Black, and, and to this day. So Chris and I have been training together about 30 years. Nice, nice. And so how many gyms do you have now? Because you have created uh, multiple SBG yeah. gyms, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things I'm most proud of is when I went off to do it, all my peers in the martial arts at the time, my peers in the Jeet Kune Do community were telling me this was never going to work. And it's very kind of a cynical take on martial arts in the sense that people don't really want to sweat. People don't want to get tapped out. People don't want to get hit. They want to click sticks together. They want to compare notes. They want to collect certificates. You're never going to make any money or be able to have a gym. And I assume that was true, but I needed to train. I wanted to train. So I, I did what I was planning on doing anyway. And of course, they all turned out to be wrong. And so I just happened to be the first school. I think I was really the first MMA or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school in Oregon. And so people just started to, to come to the gym and, and it grew from there exponentially. And then towards the end of the 90s, I produced a video set called Aliveness, which was about how to know what works in martial arts and what doesn't work and, and what, the, what, the what the determining factor is when you're talking about a functional martial art versus a fantasy-based martial art. And those videos became very popular as well. They sold a lot. And people from different parts of the country would contact me to tell me that they'd, you know, they'd been thinking the same thing I'd been thinking. They, they, they just hadn't put words to it, and they were very appreciative of it. And that's kind of how the organization started. So I had you know, people in the UK, Carl Tanswell, and then John Cavanaugh, of course, uh, was Conor McGregor's coach, was one of my first black belts. And they kind of came to me be from hearing about me through, um, through the aliveness videos. And that's how the organization kind of grew. 
Now we mm. probably have about 70 some odd locations with, you know, a dozen or so big schools that'll have, you know, between 500 and 1,000 members mm. in each one. Mm, amazing. Okay, so I want to get into the, the details of just how you think about martial arts specifically and, and violence generally, and I think we want to differentiate what you've already referred to as, as traditional and fantasy-based martial arts from proper mixed martial arts that are functional. But um, before we get into the details, let's answer this basic question, which I think occurs at least subconsciously to many listeners, which is, why think about violence at all? The more civilized a society, the more privileged one is in that society, the less likely violence is a variable that that anyone realistically has to worry about. And, you know, it's just, it's the measure of progress, really, in a society that a legitimate concern for violence diminishes, more or less, to the point of vanishing. Why think about violence? Yeah, that's a good question. I've actually thought about that quite a bit. Everything you said is true, of course, as we, as we become more and more civilized and, and uh, our communities grow and we have law enforcement and we have all the, you know, the enlightenment and all the modern things that, uh, that have helped create a better society, then the violence curve drops. But still to this day, I don't think a lot of people realize, but there's about four times as many people that are killed in interpersonal violence every year as are killed by uh, all the wars. You know, there's, there's always an exception here and there, but generally speaking, it's about half a million people a year are killed worldwide from violence. And that's never going to completely go away. And so there's that aspect of it that is there and that I, I do believe it's better for people to take personal responsibility for their own safety and well-being rather than completely farm it out to a third party, which may or may not be there if you need them. So there's that aspect of it, just very practical aspect of it. But there's another piece to it too, in, in that, you know, violence is so intrinsic to our nature as human animals, as part of who we are. And I don't think anything good comes from repressing those instincts or or thinking, you know, where some those things are somehow below us. I think really what we want to do <clears throat> is we want to have a healthy relationship to that topic. And a healthy relationship to that topic is not going to turn violence into a fetish and romanticize it on one extreme, but it's also not going to demonize or try and repress violence as something, something evil. And instead, it's just going to look at violence as what it is and try and have a healthy relationship to the topic. So if we ever do have to defend ourselves or engage in it, you know, we'll be prepared. But also, I think it's just a, a healthier way to live your life. I think there's so many people, probably some of your listeners today that are listening to this, that have tried something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and very quickly kind of fallen in love with the, with the art. And they're not in love with the art because they're thinking about hurting people. They're in love with the art because the pushing, pulling, struggling, physical contact that you have with another human being is so visceral for us and I think in many ways necessary. And so I, I don't think it's necessarily a healthy thing to separate ourselves from that part of ourself. And, and one of the things that good combat, combat athletics, functional martial arts, martial arts that are sports essentially, give people is they, give, they help put them back in touch with 
all of that, that whole aspect of who we are. And so that we can start to have, I think, a healthier relationship to the topic and not have a phobic one. Yeah. I mean, one answer to this question that I've experienced personally is just that it changes you to train in preparation for violence and to understand violence. And it changes you, in my experience, in really wholly good ways. I mean, it gives you confidence where confidence is possible. It gives you a wise circumspection where you might not have had it before, right? So it's like a, it's a antidote to certain kinds of dangerous delusions that genuinely do increase your risk of, of encountering violence and being on the, on the wrong end of it. And so in this you know, the training, whether it's in an effective martial art like Brazilian jiu-jitsu or with firearms or I mean, whatever side of this problem one engages, it's uh, kind of owning some part of that potential force continuum for oneself. It changes the way you are in the world in contexts that have nothing to do with self-defense or personal risk. I mean, you just, you have an understanding of things that matters and changes just the way you feel with other people uh, and in different circumstances. Yeah, 100%. I think that um, that's kind of a universal finding that people have. And I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons people start to fall in love with combat sports or an art like jujitsu. One of the things we say at SBG is one of our goals is to make good people more dangerous to bad people. But one of the things mm -hmm. I talk about in the book is one of the nice side benefits of making good people more dangerous to bad people is it also makes better people. And it's just the humbling process of yeah. having to deal with failure over and over again. Failure is an essential part of this process. So somebody that's not going to open themselves up to be vulnerable to that kind of failure, you, you literally can't get good at the art. It's necessary to have to tap and submit, you know, thousands of times and, and also handle and, and learn how to deal with tapping and beating other people, you know, thousands of times. And the myriad of lessons we get of interpersonal communication and things that are appropriate or not appropriate, being comfortable in uncomfortable situations, all of that really starts to come into play. And, and there's nothing really, it's not a conversation I would have as a coach at my gym. There's nothing I need to really do to facilitate that for people other than create a healthy, safe mat where people can come in, they can be vulnerable, they know they're not going to get hurt, and then that's enough. And that and the process of doing the art, all these other things we're talking about come into play. And I, you know, I, there's nothing, I, I don't need to give a lecture about it. I don't need to talk to people about it. It just happens organically that way. Mm. Well, we should talk more about what makes Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu so interesting from the point of view of training for self-defense. But before we do, let's distinguish what you call the, the fantasy-based martial arts, or the, and this, is, this overlaps impressively with what are often thought of as traditional martial arts, and the functional combat sports approach to self-defense or you know, martial arts. You know, what's now generally understood as mixed martial arts or MMA and what you see in the UFC. Perhaps we should start with what the UFC did to the conversation about what works and what doesn't. Because in, in my memory, before the UFC happened, it was all pretty hypothetical. I mean, everyone was just imagining that the art they were training in was, was super effective and would, it's sort of like asking 
what would win in a fight, a, a, a lion or a tiger, right? Well, until you have something like the Roman Colosseum where you throw those two animals together, it's all speculation. And the UFC became a kind of science experiment where all these different martial arts were hurled at one another and we could see what worked in which context. And then, and then there was a kind of an iterative evolution there where there was a kind of cross-training that happened where everyone started grabbing the skills that worked, whatever their provenance, and we got something like a generic form of, of mixed martial arts where it was understood what skills were, were fundamental and, and, and foundational at each, each range. Perhaps you can just describe what happened there. Sure. So now mixed martial arts is its own sport, and the young fighters that we have that train in Ireland or Oregon or wherever, they come into one of our gyms and they want to go down that path as fighters. They're going to be training stand-up clinch and ground. They're going to be training what we call mixed martial arts from day one as a kind of a unified whole. And that's what it's become. It's become its own sport. But when the UFC first started, that's not what it was about. Orion started it as, as you said, kind of a science experiment. And the idea was to pit different styles of martial arts against each other, which is one of the reasons why I think to this day, watching the first three or four UFCs are still some of the funnest because you're going to see a Kung Fu guy go against a mm -hmm. karate guy or whatever, and you're matching people up, almost like you, you were talking about trying to match up different animals. And there were, there were no weight classes. No weight classes. And, and no rounds. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no gloves. You know, some of those things I, I would like to see them go back to, but no weight classes, no gloves, no time limit, at least in the first, first couple of UFCs, as far as I can remember. And the only real rules were you weren't supposed to attack the eyes or, or the groin. and Horian had engaged in this experiment. The Gracies had engaged in this experiment in Brazil for decades, so they knew what was going to happen. But I don't think anybody else in the United States was particularly prepared for that. And what you saw very quickly was there's a certain handful of martial arts that will work in that environment and will work in any environment because they're functional. And so when we're talking about mixed martial arts, we're talking about boxing and Muay Thai, American wrestling. Greco-Roman wrestling, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, judo, sambo. And so you start to look at these different arts and you say, well, what do all these arts have in common that work in this environment? And what they all have in common is they're all sports. And because they're sports, the results matter. And because the results matter, they kept to some form of meritocratic competition. They have what I call an opponent process. And that is the key to what, whether a martial art works or doesn't work. And I call that aliveness, is timing, energy, and motion. And you can train in a fully alive way and, and not get hurt. And it, aliveness doesn't necessarily mean full contact sparring. Sparring is alive, but aliveness could be drilling. Aliveness could be working the technique. You usually will work the movement a few times and make sure somebody can mechanically do it. And then we'll put them into an alive drill where there's a sense of timing and there'll be a certain amount of failure. And from that process they start to develop functional skill. And all combat sports have a variation of that process. You know, the best coaches in MMA, especially in the beginning, were always the wrestling coaches because they, they brought that whole epistemology with them when they came into the, the cage. And they were much better teachers in many ways than some of the Brazilian jiu-jitsu coaches who really had taken a, a more of a traditional martial arts teaching method and applied it to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, the only difference was they're rolling. And because they're rolling, of course, they're getting that alive training and they're developing skill. But the wrestlers came with the drills, with the movement, with understanding how to train like an athlete. 
And so all the arts that you'll see in mixed martial arts now have their pieced from various combat sports. And that was the real, I think, message of the UFC. And now it's evolved to where it, it is its own sport. It's very rare you're going to see Brazilian jiu-jitsu only person versus, you know, somebody that's primarily Muay Thai or something like that. Everybody mm. that fights now has skills, stand-up clinching ground. They all have pretty high levels of kickboxing. They all have wrestling. They all have uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu on the ground. But it, it took some time for that evolution to occur. And that was just a process of combat sports being exposed in the cage and then eventually merging into what we now call MMA. So what, what is the essential toolkit for stand-up clinch and ground? How would you summarize what everyone needs to know at this point to be a fully functional combat sports athlete? Yeah. I try and think of it as... Um, ranges and delivery systems as opposed to specific martial arts. So if we talk about stand-up clinch and ground, whatever you're working for stand-up, stand-up would be striking. You're not necessarily grabbing each other, but you're, you're exchanging blows. It's going to be some variation of boxing. It's going to have a kind of a boxing base. Could be France kickboxing, sabat, Muay Thai, American boxing, but the structure, the footwork, the body mechanics, that's what works when we're striking another human being. And once you put hands on them and you're standing and you're in a clinch, there's certain amount of fixed positions, underhook, overhook, two-on-one, you know, you list out about nine or 10 different positions you're going to find yourself in, single necktie, double necktie. And various combat sports will specialize in various positions within the clinch. But having good clinch by definition means you can fight in that and, and use the delivery system of clinch and flow back and forth. And then once we hit the ground, you have to be prepared to be in literally any position you could fall on the ground with another human being. So Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you know, prepares you for that. But so does judo, so, so does uh, wrestling. So there's a lot of arts that can work down there. But I try and think of it, you know, it's like we say there's no such thing as Canadian geometry. I don't really think there's such a thing as a Japanese choke. Mm. You know, there's, there's a best practice for cutting off the blood supply to somebody's head. And um, if you get very good at that, then by definition, you're, you're going to be good at the choke. And if we talk about a hip throw, you know, there, there's some very key details that make a good hip throw work. And then that, you'll see those details in Greco-Roman wrestling. You'll see those details in judo. You'll see them in sambo. A hip throw is a hip throw. So if you kind of take the cultural affectations away from it, the, the different uniforms, the different rule sets, and just kind of look at it in a, in a very scientific way, then we can start to see stand-up clinching ground as delivery systems. And there are certain arts that, you know, we're definitely going to pull from more than others. For example, Brazilian jiu-jitsu on the ground, some kind of kickboxing or boxing for standing. And in the clinch, it's usually Greco-Roman and, and Muay Thai or some variation of, of that now. And those are the arts we're going to pull from. But I like to look at it just from a purely objective kind of scientific sense of stand-up clinching ground in all the various positions as opposed to individual style. And how would you differentiate all of that from martial arts that are pitched toward the explicitly the self-defense market, right? This is not the, these are not sports. They're very self-consciously not sports. Their techniques are 
often described as too dangerous to be fully tested because you know you, you can't train poking people in the eye or kicking them in the groin right so these are these are street techniques that uh, you can't use in the UFC and then you have arts that um, market themselves as the best possible set of all of those too lethal techniques right so and, and something like Krav Maga would fall into this category um, an art I studied uh, in my youth, uh, was was very much this uh, ninjutsu. What do you, what do you say? You know, I mean, I, I have my own opinions uh, on this topic that will certainly echo yours. But what do you see as problematic about that particular um, toolkit? So I call that the street versus sport fallacy. I talk a lot about that in the book. That was one of the one of the other reasons why I decided to write the book. That particular fallacy drives me crazy, but. You know, we've, you've heard for decades, for years now, well, what you guys do for, is for sport, you know, where there's one-on-one and there's no weapons involved. And what we do is we're training for the quote-unquote street. And people need to understand that there's no special street technique. So the example I give in the book, which is a simple one, is a headlock. Anybody who's been in a fight, uh, if you ever got in a fight as a child or as a kid in school, you probably experienced either being in a headlock or putting somebody in a headlock and punching them in the head. It's a very natural thing for kids to do when they're fighting, or people in general. And that's a fixed position that admits to best practices. And there are ways where you can shape your body by creating, connecting to the ground to build base, and then adjusting your posture, the shape of your skeleton in relation to the other person's skeleton, where you now have leverage. And you are going to win that confrontation pretty much every time. So if someone first comes into the gym, as an example, and they don't know this, and they get put in a headlock, they can certainly be stuck, especially if the other person's bigger and stronger. And after a couple of years, by the time most students start to become what we call blue belt, which is the first belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, a headlock becomes a fairly simple, easy thing to escape from and usually means you're going to dominate that particular scenario pretty much every time. So you go from a position where you would very likely fail to you're going to dominate that altercation pretty much every time. And the reason why you're going to dominate that altercation is because you're going to have base and posture. So you're, you're putting your body in a position where you have leverage before you start to apply pressure, just push and pull. Now, if we do that, that best practice is the best practice in a cage. If you're fighting in UFC and you get caught in a cage, it's going to work there. If you're in a jiu-jitsu tournament and you're in, you know, fighting for points in a jiu-jitsu tournament, you get put in a headlock, it's going to be the same there. And if you get in a fight out in the parking lot and find yourself rolling around on the ground with somebody in a headlock, it's going to be the same there. And so there's no special street headlock technique. You know, tactics may change. Certainly the stakes of the engagement may change. But the root skills you develop in the delivery system of stand-up, clinch, and ground, those you carry with you in every environment, in every situation. And someone who has several years of that kind of training, even if it's just primarily, we'll just call it sport in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and they focus mostly on a tournament jiu-jitsu, sport jiu-jitsu, against someone who doesn't have any of those skills, there's, there's really no comparison. And you're not going to make up for that deficit by grabbing somebody in the groin or thinking you're going to stick your thumb in their eyeball or something like that. That's just not how fighting works. And so 
this idea that some martial arts are for sport and some martial arts for street is basically a fallacy. You can train specifically 95% of the time for the street if you want to. For example, for law enforcement, you're going to have very specific type of uh, training and, and things that you're going to focus on. But the, the root movements of the delivery system, being able to hold someone down and mount, being able to escape somebody sitting on your chest, being able to punch somebody in the face, being able to pick someone up and drop them, being able to keep someone from picking you up and, and dropping you on the asphalt, those are universal. Those transcend environment. And so that's one of the main points I try and get across to people is not only is that kind of training so much healthier, the kind of combat athletics that we're talking about, I think it's mentally healthier and physically healthier and spiritually healthier. It's also more practical at the end of the day. Well, so, so you seem to be alluding to what is uniquely powerful about grappling here. And so I can say as, as someone who started his martial arts career with you know what I would consider largely a fake martial art, I can say that the experience was one of engaging in all of these um, techniques that purported to be you know, too dangerous to train fully, and in fact they were. Again, you can't poke your training partner in the eye for real to see if it works. <laughs> but even, even just ordinary striking-based martial arts, even valid ones, are limited in how fully you can train them because to repeatedly get hit in the head is synonymous with getting brain damage, right? So even, so even boxing or Muay Thai or any of these other totally legitimate striking systems are things that you have to train judiciously. And when you're not, so when you're training them in a way that is compatible with, with safety, it can become a, a bit of a pantomime of violence rather than real violence. Yeah. Whereas with grappling, what is unique about it is that you, can, you really can train at 100% Right, you could, you know, or or something close to a hundred percent, a hundred, you know, true hundred percent being the full-on emergency of of a of a real self-defense situation. Right, and given that you can train it that way without getting injured, right? I mean, you, get, you obviously you do get injured, you know, where one can often get injured uh, training grappling as well, but it's not the same kind of injury that you get from striking because you know striking to be effective really is synonymous with injury. I mean, to hit right. someone in the head and to have that work as a way of submitting them, you know, i.e. you knock them out, right. is, that is a concussion, right? That is synonymous with something bad happening to them neurologically. Whereas with grappling, putting someone in a position where they cannot move and they cannot prevent you from choking them unconscious, i.e. actually killing them if you wanted to, mm -hmm. or breaking their arm, and, you, and they just simply tap out, they need not have been injured at all, and yet you had the experience, uh, depending on which side of that exchange you were on, you, had, you either had the ex experience of completely dominating someone despite their 100% effort to not be dominated, or you had the experience, more likely over and over again in the beginning, of being completely dominated and realizing that you, know, you would have been killed or gravely injured but for the fact that this was a training circumstance. And the ability to train at that level where you're making 100% effort against 100% resistance, that is what is so unique, at least in my experience, about grappling in general and, and you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu specifically, which is the one I, I focused on. Yeah. Yeah, a couple things there. Just to circle back to 
the street versus sport, you know, delusion for a second. If someone said to me, Matt, I want to learn how to be able to throw hands in a fight. I want to be able to punch and slip punches. And I want to be able to actually strike in a fight for the street, primarily for self-defense. I would send them to a boxing gym, you know, because yeah. the last person you want to exchange blows with in the street is a boxer. So it, it is completely functional. But as you mentioned, all the combat sports are pretty tough on the body. And I think what we know now about traumatic brain injury, one of my great regrets is how hard we trained when I first started and how hard we went with a lot of the students. It was way more head contact than we should have used. And we don't do that anymore, but we, we kind of had to evolve into smarter practices for that because obviously those concussions build up and we don't want to get brain damage. But jujitsu, unlike Muay Thai or unlike um, any of the other arts, even judo and wrestling can be pretty hard on the body because the constant takedowns. Jiu-jitsu mm -hmm. really is an art that you can train, like you said, 100% alive, fully functional, go pretty hard if you want to on a regular basis, and not get hurt. And then as that all circles back into being able to defend yourself in a fight, if you have to end an altercation, there's really only three ways that altercation is going to end. The person's going to go away, you know, they're just going to run off for some reason, or, or it's going to get broken up, or you're going to have to knock them unconscious, or you control them in such a way that they can't move and potentially choke them. And of those three, the most reliable way to end that fight is to control their body and to choke them unconscious. Because no matter what substances they have flowing in their system, no matter how strong they are, no matter how big they are, once you cut off the flow of blood to their head, they're going to go to sleep. And so that is the most practical, most efficient, and Really, the beautiful part about jiu-jitsu, one of the things that makes Brazilian jiu-jitsu unique is its constant search for increased efficiency. And so from just a purely practical standpoint, it also makes a lot of sense to focus on your grappling part. And as Jocko and other people have said before, if you can't run away from a situation, if you're not a police officer, if you're not protecting somebody else at the time, you know, there's really no reason why you should be engaged in some kind of status based dispute outside a bar or something like that situation, you could just leave. If you can't, that by definition means they're holding you. They're hanging on to you. They've got their arms mm -hmm. around you. They're preventing your exit. And that's when the skills of Brazilian jiu-jitsu just completely take over. Yeah. Yeah. So we've given a, an overview of the training here and kind of the differences between real and, and fake training. All right, let's just linger on the, on the fakeness for a second because it, it is somehow inscrutable that it persists even to this day, right? I mean, there, there are people who are spending a tremendous amount of time training in martial arts, imagining that they're preparing themselves for real violence. Yeah. And we know that that is delusional, mm -hmm. depending, you know, if, if it's an art like Aikido, or I mean, we could, we could cast opprobrium on, on a long list of traditional arts here. It's not that they might not have a, a technique here and there that is serviceable, but in general, these traditional arts are, you know, theaters of delusion. Right. And they're, you know, extreme cases. You, know, you and I have sent each other, you know, hilarious videos over the years of, of the, the truly fake martial arts that are exposed as fake when some master, you know, some kung fu master or, or uh, master of another flavor uh, who's using energy to defeat his opponents without even touching them. Yeah. <laughs> winds up getting uh, embarrassed by getting you know repeatedly hit in the face by somebody who was non-compliant, and there's just there are many videos of this kind. How is it that this persists? I mean, how how does one maintain 
the delusion, you know, from the side of the teacher and from the side of, of the student long enough for this thing to just continue for a lifetime. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question. And one of the questions I get asked the most when I'm teaching seminars or doing interviews is people ask me, you know, why do these kind of fantasy-based martial arts continue to exist? And the thing I try and re remind everybody is because something's been around a long time doesn't mean it's necessarily good for us. It just means it's good at replication. And so one of the one of the reasons why when you wrote The End of Faith, that book really struck a chord with me is because what I was reading about the arguments that you would run up, religious arguments that you'd run into, and the way the argument proceeded, even kind of the which argument they used first and what the natural follow-up was, they're identical to what we're talking about in traditional martial arts. So you're going to have, it's basically religion. You're going to have an origin story of you know, some frail martial arts master who was blind or something like this and had to learn how to fight. And everything is based on appeal to authority. And the master had to lay down these movements and some kind of secret pattern that gets passed down from generation to generation. And then you learn the pattern so that you can carry on the movements. Um, but there's no aliveness. So it just becomes very, it's just a sclerotic pattern and it, which gets repeated. Why it persists, I think, is because of what, why people train. You know, I don't think everybody trains. Like when I went back to the Jeet Kune Do school after I'd had my, my run-in with Hickson, and I was trying to tell him, it's like, look, I just saw a guy tap a room full of judo black belts without using his hands. He had his hands in his belt. He was, he was just rolling with his legs, and he was submitting them. This is amazing. This is everything I've always heard martial arts could be, but, but isn't. This is the real thing. And, you know, I was like, well, you don't want to be on the ground in a fight. How's he ever going to take you down? And, and so they had all these underlying excuses, but really at the core, they weren't training for the same reason I was training. I was training because I wanted to know what worked in a fight. And honestly, that's never really changed. That's been my core driving focus of what's true in martial arts. And they were not. And so if you're not motivated by that, you know, then uh, some of these martial arts, some of the more ridiculous ones actually get more traction, which is one of the other things that's very interesting. I'll use Sistema as an example. It's ridiculous, fake Russian martial art, but where you'll see some obese guy you know, barely moving and pretending to knock people down. And you'll think to yourself, you know, I know very smart, intelligent martial artists who also train in arts like Brazilian jiu-jitsu or boxing, and who can then still kind of get suckered by that kind of stuff. And it is so transparently ridiculous. But I actually think that the ridiculous kind of nature of it is part of what attracts them to it, because in a way they're looking for a magic bullet. They want some. They want there to be some magic martial art that can allow you know a frail eighty-five-year-old person to beat up two football players in a parking lot, and they're mm -hmm. deeply motivated by by that, and then they'll start to to chase after it. And as long as I think people have that inside them, there's going to be con artists who are going to whip up some fake martial art to, to sell. And, and the, the sad part about it too is because I see some of the younger kids, maybe kids that were bullied in school, get attracted to some of those martial arts because of the marketing. Because the marketing is always about learn how to defend yourself in the street. And I think it's a really unhealthy path for them to go down. And I know if you took that same young man and you put him in my school or any good Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy or makes martial arts school, in two or three years, they would be completely transformed you know, in a positive way about how they deal with people. So we have a solution for those problems, but it's not what those guys were offering. Didn't, just, just to circle back on the 
your experience in, in Jeet Kune Do, didn't Dan Inasano actually become a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt in the end? Yeah, he? I think he's a black belt under Higan Machado. Yeah, so he must have understood the, the utility there. But were you, were you training with Dan or what Jeet Kune Do school did you go back to? We would bring him up so that when I, the school I initially taught at in Portland, Oregon was a Jeet Kune Do Academy. And my partner in the school was an instructor under Dan Inasano. So Dan would come up a couple times a year and I got an opportunity to spend time with him and see him at seminars. I just think that they have a misguided approach. So with the Jeet Kune Do community, you basically, I don't go on a tangent, but real quickly, mm. they divided into kind of two groups. So the first group, what they call original, and their primary focus is teaching and doing exactly what Bruce Lee did, which is insane. So it's a 33-year-old movie star. He died when he was 33, movie star, was only exposed to a certain amount of you know, uh, material at the time. And they want to take that and kind of codify it and make that an art. And so on one hand, you have a kind of a traditional martial art being made. And in the Jeet Kune Do concepts community, they had this kind of, like I said, utilitarian approach where they would pull from all these different arts and there would be Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and there would be Muay Thai and there would be boxing, but then they would have some ridiculous piece from Silat or from System or who knows what. And they weren't really discriminating. And I would hear mm. the instructors discriminate privately amongst each other when they would talk. But when they're in front of the group, when they're in front of the seminar, it was a different story. It was all arts have something good. You know, it just depends on the context. And that began to frustrate me because it seemed, you know, duplicitous. It reminds me of what happens in religion when you'll have somebody you know, if you're engaged in a debate with someone and they'll start talking about how everything in Genesis is a metaphor, and, and, but then when you go and sit in their congregation and listen to them preach, you realize the majority of the congregation of that same person takes Genesis to be a news report. Mm. So there's a disconnect between what they're privately saying and what they're publicly teaching. And so for me, I just couldn't, I, I also just, I can't fathom why when we have an art like jiu-jitsu we have, but I don't have enough time in the day to even get close to the amount of jiu-jitsu training that I could be doing. Why would I want to train something silly? You know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But mm. those are the two camps. And, and so it was like an all-you-can-eat buffet, and a lot of it was junk food. And I think they thought that you could pull different techniques from different martial arts and create your own style. And I just don't think that's how fighting works. It, Instead, what you should be doing is looking for the fundamental movements of stand-up, clinch, and ground, and through a process of a live training, over the period of 10, 15, 20 years, each individual athlete develops his or her own style. And then, you know, the temptation is to teach your style, when in reality, what you need to do is turn around and help other athletes go through that same journey so that they can develop their own style. And what we all share and have in common are the fundamentals of stand-up, clinch, and ground. But each fighter will be completely unique and different. And to me, that's what reading the, the best possible interpretation into Bruce Lee's writing, to me, that's what he was actually seeking to do. And some, somewhere along mm. the way, it just got lost. Mm. Well, let's um, talk for a little while about the difference for men and women in this theater of concern, because it seems that men and women encounter violence if they encounter it at all in very different ways and by a different logic. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are very few women who are 
challenge to you know step outside on the street and and get into a a fist fight you know i.e. a duel with a stranger uh, you know outside a bar and men tend not at least you know outside of a prison context tend not to get raped uh, you know physically controlled and and you know sexually assaulted uh, the way women do so th- there's there's just differences here let's start with men and the kinds of um, ways in which they they find themselves in physical conflict unnecessarily you know, that, that that is avoidably um, and I think I think you've used the word uh, at least once so far and it, it, it is relevant here and it's the concept of maturity yeah. how do you think about maturity you know, psychologically and and its relevance to keeping men safe yeah so that's a that's a big part of the book for me and that was something I started to see you know when I decided to to write the book I went and looked at the data first and you know who attacks who and when and all that kind of stuff and and the one unmistakable I think conclusion anybody who looks at the data has to draw from is that a great deal of interpersonal violence comes as a result of issues related to maturity so you know it's not so much about even if we talk about the shootings just to talk about gang-related shootings or assaults in the street, it's not usually financial. It's young men battling it out with other other young men over stupid status-based disputes. This is the majority category in a plurality of reasons why violence is committed. When we're talking about the majority category, that is it. And I, I don't think a lot of people fully realize that, is basically you have fatherless young men hurting and engaging in conflict with other fatherless young men. And that that is a big portion of what we have is problematic violence. With women, it's different. So the biggest threat to a woman is going to be her significant other. Dating is very dangerous for, for women. So, you know, at least half of all the women that are killed every year in the United States are killed by a husband or boyfriend or a significant other. And in almost every one of those cases, there's going to be a history of stalking and the person continually not taking no for an answer. So women come to have to deal with violence in a, in a different way, and it comes to them in a different way. But the solutions remain the same. And I don't think, it, so and from that standpoint, I don't think issues related to maturity are quite as important for women when they're learning how to defend themselves, because I don't think a woman is likely to get in, into that kind of dispute. For young men, I think it's critical to have mm-hmm. some semblance of empathy, impulse control, and to be able to, some self-awareness which is so important. And again, going back to combat sports is one of the things that I think it can help develop in young men is that increased sense of maturity. Well, let's drill down on the, the psychology of it for men for a minute. What often happens is a man who's need not even be self-identified as being tough or being someone who, who can own violence in any significant way will nevertheless find himself in a situation where it seems that the only way to save face is to get into a physical altercation, right? Like someone will have baited him successfully, someone will have insulted him in front of his girlfriend, say, and it's just in order to, I mean, it's a very primal, apish, you know, genetically encoded moment where it's, you know, you, you can be, if you've never encountered it in yourself, there are definitely cultural aspects to it, and honor culture certainly leverages what's in the genes to a great degree. But you know, young young men certainly, if you're experiencing this for the first time, 
It's quite surprising, the psychology of it that comes online, because it, it, it can be married to a, a totally delusional failure to avoid, you know, more or less certain injury. The only analogy that I think virtually everyone has experienced is road rage, which is, again, you know, this completely delusional piece of software comes online where, you know, because you're in this metal box, you feel free to start raving at the stranger in the other metal box, uh, having no idea who that person is or what they're capable of. And, you know, it goes so far as that, you know, you just find yourself at a, at a st- stopped at a red light with this person, and you're completely at the mercy of this, you know, lottery that you have, you know, unwittingly entered into where maybe the person's going to get out of the car and he's going to, you're about to discover that he's six foot eight, 300 pounds, and uh, is going to come out with a baseball bat. And like, that is the person you were happily yelling at a moment and honking your horn at and giving the finger to a moment ago. But what's amazing is that there are men, you know, you know, young men and even not so youngish men who have really no ability to fight. They haven't trained anything. Right. And yet they will find themselves in a situation where they, they simply do not have the psychological resources to walk away yeah. from a provocation where they might be standing in front of somebody who's got, you know, cauliflower ear and all the signs of knowing what he's doing in a fight. And uh, they still can't disengage yeah. w- without exposing themselves to violence. So perhaps you can talk about what training in a combat sport actually does to that psychology. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's an inverse correlation there with the less skill a young man has in terms of um, actually being able to physically fight, the more apt I think they would be to be goaded into a situation like that where they'd be involved in a physical confrontation that's not necessary. But one of the things you know I found interesting over the years is if you talk to young fighters when they're getting ready to go in the cage to a person, I've never met one of them who was worried about, really worried about getting hurt. I mean, in the back of their mind, maybe, but that wasn't their concern. The, the major concern every young man has when he gets into the cage to fight is looking bad in front of his family and friends. And mm. this is the thing, too, about men who sign up and want to learn how to defend themselves. It's not so much a fear of self-preservation, although that certainly exists. It's more the fear of being humiliated that weighs on them very heavily. And again, physically training in an art like that will help them overcome that, help them deal with that, help them learn not just what they can do, but just as importantly, what they can't do. And you know what the limits of what their body is capable of and not capable of, which will help guide them in situations like that, where they otherwise, otherwise might be pulled into one of those status-based dis- disputes. But it is, like I said, the biggest category, especially for men. And so even if you're a more mature male who's not inclined to get into those kind of situations, I think being able to notice that lack of maturity, be able to see that lack of maturity expressed around you can help keep you safe and help keep you out of altercations you might otherwise be involved in because you can see that as a threat. You see that there's a level of immaturity here. There's, uh, you know, some bravado, some big expansive motions, an attempt to make yourself look larger like all animals do. And that's a potential threat. And then we can, you know, adjust and move around according to it. But, but back to what you were saying, I do think that fear of humiliation is something that runs deep in all young men. I know I certainly had it when I was, when I was younger, when I was a boy. And 
I don't think women have that. And, you know, certainly not my experience of, of all the women that I've trained. I have multiple female black belts that I've given out, but they, as you mentioned, they come with a, a different set of worries, but it, that is a uniquely young male problem and young male issue. And we talked about it at the very beginning. I don't think pretending that it doesn't exist, trying to repress it or is, is an answer either, because then I think it's even more likely that you're going to get in, you're going to get out of the car and get that stupid argument, have it turn physical when it otherwise shouldn't. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, this could be something that, that uh, only comes as one gets older, but insofar as one can engineer this you know, overarching philosophy for, for oneself, I think it's, it's wise to do. There, there's just this basic rubric you can install in advance of any of these, encountering any of these situations, wherein you realize that you have more to lose from violence than virtually anyone who would want to engage you in it, right? So like, if, if violence is avoidable, you should be avoiding it at more or less any cost, given that even if it goes w- well for you, it's a tremendous hassle yeah. at best, right? It's just when you, when you look at the, the legal implications of, of winning in, in any kind of altercation, I mean, certainly when we'll talk about weapons in a second, but certainly when, you're, when you add weapons to this picture and you talk about the possibility of lethal you know, or near lethal violence, yeah. the, the, the life deranging hassle of even you know, a successful act of self-defense is so significant that really your, your, your whole goal, whatever your skills, whatever your training, whatever, you know, whatever your relationship to honor and and you know, your, whatever your self-concept as you know, a person who should be able to handle himself or control situations or shouldn't be treated this way by some ape in a bar, your goal really should be to avoid these situations just comprehensively. And uh, whatever, whatever your genes seem to be crying out for in any given moment. Yeah. yeah. You know, when we, when we actually talk about physical conflict, any kind of physical conflict, whether it's a one-on-one fight or some military conflict, anything like that. To control that conflict, you have to control the distance. And if you can control the distance in an altercation, you can control the altercation. And obviously, the best way to control distance is to stay away from the whole situation to begin with. That's the ultimate in distance management. So that's 100% true. You have the threat of going to jail. You have civil suits. You have all kinds of millions of different reasons why it's not a smart thing to do. But I've certainly been in those situations where I've, you know, I've had road rage or had people screaming at me or, you know, things like that. And there is no time in my life or during the day that someone is uh, less likely to goad me into a fight than after I've come back from training. You know, if I've gone to the gym and I've had a couple hours of training and I got some rolls in and I'm feeling good and I get back in my car, it would pretty much take an act of God to get somebody get me out of that car and have me goad me into some kind of fight because I'm just I feel that way the least after I've engaged in that kind of uh, activity. If I've been off the mat for two or three weeks or I've had an injury or something like that, I've been isolated and set apart from that side of myself. I think now that I'm obviously 54, I'd still be hard to goad me into a fight, but you're way more likely to do it (laughs) if I haven't been training. And so there's a, a huge factor of just having that physical familiarity with the, the physical conflict that is going to help keep you out of those kind of situations. 
So uh, what would you say about the unique situation of women here? I mean, one, one thing that seems relevant is that most violence against women, you know, at least, you know, the violence of, directed by men toward women is, is often almost by definition grappling, right? Yeah. It's an effort to control them physically, right? And because it's, it's so often a part of a, a, an attempted sexual assault, you know, there's not a lot of boxing matches. Uh, it's not to say that men never strike women, but it's just, again, it's, it has this grappling implication almost by definition, which makes training in, in an art like jiu-jitsu especially good self-defense for women. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's incredibly important. Um, I'm the father of two daughters. Both my daughters train. My wife and I, my wife trains, um, my son trains, the whole family trains. And with my girls, we always have the conversation of, you know, do we want to push them into it or not push them in? It's the type of thing where I want to make them have to go or let them choose to go. And with my two older sons, I kind of left it up to them. And, and thankfully, my son Liam has come back to it and he helps and teaches at the gym now and, and loves it. But he had to kind of come to it his own way. And with the girls, I decided, no, we're going to treat this like school. My wife's mm. from Iceland, where everybody has to learn to swim for the obvious reasons of being on an island. We're going to treat it like swim lessons. Like it's just something that you, you need to do. I hope you enjoy it and learn to enjoy it, but you're going to go to class. Um, yeah. And I really think it's that important for them. And um, I think that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, one of the things I'm very proud of is I have, we have a lot of female students at SBG. My gym itself here in Portland is probably 30, 40% women. And I think it's creating an environment where women feel comfortable coming in at first, because a lot of women, especially if they've had past trauma or sexual abuse or things like that, it can be difficult, you know, training with a man or being in, in that kind of close contact with a man. Having a women's only class, I think, is really important so that you can bring women in. They can start to train together in an environment where they feel safer. Again, because part of what we do involves becoming vulnerable, allowing yourself to be vulnerable physically with another person. You have to create a situation where they feel okay about that. And then over time, what I've seen happen is then, then they start to filter into the other class and pretty soon they start to train with men and and then they're on the mat training like everybody else. And I think women love Brazilian jiu-jitsu just as much, if not more so, than, than men. And I also say from my own personal experience, they're much better students. Every female jiu-jitsu black belt that I've given out has reached that level of training much faster, generally speaking, because when I coach them on what to do or not do, they basically do it. <laughs> they mm. Don't go back to old habits because sometimes those habits work for them. And they tend to be more practical about how they approach training. So yes, I can't imagine not having my daughters train. I can't imagine my wife not training. It's just it's such a huge part of their life. And I know it's been had such a positive impact on all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Both my daughters are training now and uh, you know, I'm treating it the same way you have, like you basically as as mandatory, you know, and it's not I, I realize that it would be great for them to just love it and want to, you know, organically do it. But at least in the beginning, I mean, up to a certain point, I, I think you just have to treat it like swim lessons yep. for girls. Yeah, that's what's happening. I, I do want to talk about weapons, but uh, before we get there, well, let's talk about intuition and the, the kind of snap judgments people make about other people and how we have a, a reigning philosophy at the moment that 
discourages that or and, and stigmatizes it and makes uh, all of us uh, members of polite society quite worried that we um, are being bigoted or being misled by stereotypes or otherwise not being good citizens if we take our our kind of thin slicing discomfort around other people seriously. Yeah. Yeah, the term I use in the book is primal instincts and I really do think they go deep in our core and you know it's, it's reminding everybody that you're a product of unbroken chain of success of your ancestors who managed to procreate and have children procreate all the way back which is you know incredibly unusual. We are the winners of that particular lottery and part and parcel of being able to do that involved your ancestors having to be able to differentiate and, and notice threats, to be able to deal with threats, to be able to defend their life, to be able to take human life in some cases. And so we have all these deep-rooted instincts within us from our ancestors. And I, I don't think the majority of people have even the slightest idea of, of how deep those instincts go and how useful they can be. So one of the big points I try and make in the book is to learn how to pay attention and listen to that. And when you're rationalizing away, when you start to feel those instincts, you know, butterflies in your stomach, or you just notice something doesn't look right, but you can't quite put your finger on it, you're starting to feel uneasy about a particular situation uh, because there are thousands of things that, you know, maybe you didn't consciously realize that you tuned into um, that are telling you that there's a threat in the area. And so you start to feel those, and then you start to rationalize away your instincts, that's when you really get in trouble. This is something Gavin DeBecker's talked a lot about, of course, and, and it's such an important thing for people to realize. But if you learn to pay attention and listen to those instincts and to pay even more attention to them when your conscious mind is trying to rationalize them away, that's when you know that you're, you're really in trouble. Again, we can go back to avoiding a great deal of these altercations. And mm. as you mentioned, predators, all predators profile. That's what they do. Uh, I use a one study in my book I talk about where they'd had, I believe they had prisoners from Rikers, and they just showed them people walking across the street from the neck down. So they didn't even see the facial expressions of their heads. And then they would have them rate, I think on a scale of one to 10, how likely they'd be to attack that particular person or to pick that particular person to, to assault or to mug. And they found that there was massive consensus. So they were making these decisions very quickly within fractions of a second. And most of them were making the same decisions. And so it, it really would come down to how a person carries themselves, their gait, their posture, how they're walking. But all predators do that. They do it very quickly. And then that's how they pick who's going to be on their shopping list. And so understanding to how important it is to listen to our evolved primal instincts on top of having some educated awareness about what, what you should look for and not look for is super important. And for the people listening now, the main thing I would say is, you know, the, those moments where you're trying to rationalize away that feeling, that's when you need to be really careful because we don't want to think bad about other people or we don't want to think of ourselves as think, being racist or something like this. That's when you have to really stop and just listen to what your body's trying to tell you that's going on in that particular situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, just to echo something you said, that this is one thing we're actually very good at by nature, right? I mean, this is, you know, we, we have evolved over the course of hundreds of thousands and, and likely millions of years as primates to detect 
other primates being sketchy for, in one way or another. And in Homo sapiens, it has a lot to do with being able to um, detect uh, another person's eye gaze, right? And, and just even just very quick changes in gaze. And the fact that we can see the, the whites of another person's eyes uh, makes that extremely easy to do. And this is not something that other, other apes uh, don't enjoy. And it's a, um, there's a tremendous amount of information coming off of other people mm-hmm. and their, their micro-expressions and their body language. And I, th- I think you make um, the point at one point in the book, uh, which I, I re- really people need to have seen video of it for, for it to be, uh, I think, super salient. But there's just this phenomenon of a, of a witness check, right, where someone will, upon approaching their target, they will look around to see if there's anyone who could witness the thing they're about to do, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, and that's, until you've seen that maneuver, you know, you're not, you know, if, if it happens in your presence, you might not, not have any conscious awareness of what you have just noticed, but it's a very weird thing. You know, one good thing about YouTube is that, you know, for anyone who's interested in, in violence, there's now an endless amount of footage of violence, mm-hmm. right? And you can see, you know, the approaching criminal look around at that last second to see if there's anyone around to see this next thing he's about to do, and then he attacks his mark. You know, obviously this is the penultimate moment before actual violence, so it's, you know, you, you would want to have avoided the situation sooner than that. But it's this detail of body language, which even if you don't know what its logic is, there's something wrong with it. And m- many people can just intuitively grok it for reasons that only their genes could explain. We're just good at this. So, so if you're overriding your feeling of discomfort in the presence of another person, it's not to say that discomfort can never be miscalibrated, but you're choosing to silence something that uh, you're actually naturally gifted at. Yeah. If you're a primate, and that's not true, you know, for much of what we have to navigate in the modern world, evolution has not prepared us very well, but it has prepared us for this. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And one of the things, so once we get to a situation like that, that is already pretty late in this particular altercation, and that's somebody that's probably picked you. And that's important to keep in mind too, is, you know, did you approach this person or did this person approach you? They're going to be looking for witnesses, and then they'll do what we call grooming, some kind of grooming behavior where they're trying to act natural but do something with their hands, and that's usually what they're going to do right before they punch you. But in that particular situation, I think that the vast majority of everybody who's listening to us right now will be feeling, whether they understand it or not, real fear in that moment because they are in the presence of an actual physical threat. And fear is you know, choiceless, and it's something that just happens naturally when you're physically in the presence of another threat. And so allowing yourself to feel that and, and have that be a wake-up call for you so that you can begin to make distance or navigate this particular situation is, is so important. And again, where you're most apt to get in trouble is when, you're start, when you start to rationalize and talk to yourself to try to rationalize away these physical feelings that you're having. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, we don't want to be rude. We don't want to be, and again, we don't want to be racist. We don't want to be any of these ugly things. And in certain circumstances, certainly if you're in the presence of a psychopath, you know, they're very good at manipulating you on the basis of those civilized expectations. 
to not be rude and to not be a bigot. They'll look to exploit it, actually. Okay, so let's talk about weapons. How, how do you think about the introduction of weapons on either side of, of these encounters? Sure. So with weapons, basically we're going to be talking about edged impact or projectile weapons, so sticks and clubs, knives, sharp things, and firearms. As a factor, the, the alive training method becomes even more important because the stakes are that much higher. We'll talk about knives first. People who don't have a lot of training with knives or haven't trained in functional martial art that deals with knives may not realize just how dangerous knives are. Uh, and you can see that a lot of times in how our media and people react in certain shootings that police officers will get in and they'll say, well, the person only had a knife and not understand how potentially deadly that situation can be. There is no good way to defend yourself empty-handed against a knife. The closest that we've come to is um, a method that we call STAB, which was developed by one of my black belts, Carl Tanswell in the UK. And it's basically getting a hold of that weapon arm and hanging onto it. And this is where your skills from the delivery system of clinch are really going to come in, come into play. And if, if somebody feels like they're going to have to deal with that, which more often than not, especially would be law enforcement, then we want to spend a, a great deal of time drilling and focusing on what we'd call a two-on-one and being able to control that weapon arm. And they're usually going to feel it before they see it. You know, if somebody comes up and they show you a knife in such a way where you could like grab the knife or take the knife away, that's not somebody, you know, you could just run away from that situation. So somebody who's truly intent on stabbing you is probably just going to walk up close and then just start grabbing the back of your head or your body and repeatedly pumping the blade into you. You're going to feel it before you even see it. And then you work to control that weapon arm and, and disable the threat. That takes a lot of skill. And I recommend everybody spends a little bit of time training that, even if it's not something you want to spend a lot of time on. It's going to teach you real quickly how dangerous knives are and make it even more, even less likely that you would ever attempt to engage in a situation like that unless you absolutely had to. So if I see someone with a knife, the first thing I'm going to do is get away. Uh, if I can't get away, I'm going to put something between myself and the person with a knife. And only if I can't get away and I don't have anything I can put between us or something I can pick up, then I have to try and deal with that person. It's going to be very difficult. And I'm likely going to get stabbed or sliced along the way and, you know, hopefully be able to eventually get control of the arm. So that's how we, we train with weapons. We treat weapons just like we do hand-to-hand, -hand, and we're going to train with aliveness. We're going to drill everything alive. There's nothing too deadly that can't be trained alive. So anybody that says that doesn't understand alive training or, you know, the reality of what we're talking about. And in, as far as firearms goes, that's a whole other section of, you know, I think a lot of people now, especially up here in Oregon, are starting to carry concealed with the spike we've seen in the shootings and things. And and I'm great with people doing that. I think it's a good thing, but I, I want to make sure that everybody that does decide to carry concealed gets a lot of training and spends a lot of time training with that with that tool. It's really, really important. You, you're not just going to buy it, put it on your person, and then start walking around thinking you're going to be able to defend yourself with that particular weapon. You need to put the time in in learning how to operate that weapon. And as far as the physical techniques or strategies we use, it, it, it's the same thing as with empty hand fighting. It's all about fundamentals, you know, your base, your posture, your side alignment, trigger pull, all the being able to clear, clear your weapon if it gets, if it malfunctions, all those things become very, very important. Being able to hang on to it. If you have a weapon and you pull it and someone starts to grab your gun, being able to maintain control of that weapon. And again, 
Interestingly enough, when we start to talk about handgun retention and we start to talk about knives, we go back to clinch. It comes back to standing grappling. It really becomes the mm. best, most effective way to deal with those types of situations. Yeah, one thing that weapons also amplify here is the the concern I raised earlier, which is just having so much to lose when anything of this sort actually occurs, right? So it, it puts even more primacy on avoidance because you just, you know, if, if you're carrying a knife for the purposes of self-defense or you're carrying a firearm, you can't afford to get into a shoving match with some imbecile or, you know, even a shouting match, right? And like, you, like you can't let anything escalate because you're armed, right? Like you're, you know, you're, if you get into a wrestling match with someone, well, could, there's a gun in play or there's a knife in play because you happen to have one on your person, leaving aside what the other person might have, right? I mean, that's the other thing. You just never know who else is armed. Yeah. So you're introducing a, a weapon into the situation the moment you have one on your person. Yeah. So it, it's clarifying in a way. It's like, you know, it might even be face saving for the person who hasn't worked out all of these psychological kinks for themselves in advance. I mean, if, you're, if you are armed and you're also a, you know, a martial artist who you know, may have sort of face-saving concerns around just walking away from every possible provocation, if you have a weapon on you, it just might be clarifying in a way that being unarmed wouldn't. You know, if you, you could just, you just realize, okay, this is, I just have to leave this situation. Yeah. It's just too dangerous to be armed and chest thumping with with another primate. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so how do you think about the um, blunt weapons? Like, you know, like, because I know that, you know, JKD gave you a lot of exposure to Filipino, you know, stick fighting. Yeah. Screama, Kali. Yeah. What, what, what does someone do with a stick that is useful, if anything? Well, you know, impact weapons can be useful, especially if you, you know, if you have an improvised, you can pick up anything you can hit somebody else with. When I first opened up my own school, we were basically, I was going through all the different techniques from Kali, Scream, everything else, and deciding on what, I, what we're going to be using and what we weren't going to be using. And pretty much all of the Kali, Scream, I got thrown out. I just didn't find it practical. I only reintroduced Defending Against the Knife after I met Carl, which I think was in 2000, because when I met him, you know, he had been stabbed. He'd been stabbed seven times, a couple times in the head, and five or six times in the body while he was working on a door there in Manchester. And um, fortunately, his fiance at the time was able to stop the bleeding, which was the only reason he lived. But he set his mind to being able to figure out how to deal with that situation. And he had drilled and he'd come up with this, you know, basically a variation of the two-on-one and how to use it. And he told me when I was there in Manchester, and I was like, show me, you know, let's see. You know, you've got to show me and we'll see if it works or not. And it was the best thing I'd seen. So I brought him to the States and we in- implemented that. As far as the sticks, we did the first few years, especially I opened up my school, we were doing full contact stick fighting. We stopped doing that, you know, talk about brain trauma and diff- you know, it's not worth, the, not worth it to take a full on stick shot to the head when you're wearing a fencing mask. So I don't recommend people do it. But it definitely um, clarified what works and what doesn't work with a stick. And the main thing is it's not easy to knock someone out. You know, if you have, you have a big angry animal in front of you and they're intent on charging you, just because you have a stick in your hand doesn't mean, you know, that you're going to knock them out on the way in. So learning how to swing the stick with power and then being mobile so you can move and swing with power and grapple. Because 
once they get inside the arc of that weapon, you're going to be, again, clinch and or ground. A lot of those full contact stick fights ended on the ground, and probably even the majority of them. There'd be two or three heavy shots. Maybe someone got knocked out. And if they didn't, you found you're rolling around on the ground. So I still have that curriculum from the full contact, and it's pretty simple. You know, a backhand, forehand, high, low, learn how to fade in, move out, or, you know, block and hit back. And everything's done with aliveness, and there's no dead patterns, no non-functional movement. And I think you confidently teach someone how to fight fairly effectively with a stick in a couple days, teach them all the movement they would need, and then they can take that couple days of training and drill it for the next two or three years and become pretty confident dealing with a stick. As far as practical uses, unless someone's Mm -hmm. carrying a baton for some reason or a collapsible baton, most often when we're dealing with that, we're dealing with law enforcement. Right, right. Well, Matt, we've given a a pretty comprehensive tour here. Is there anything else you want to talk about as far as a topic that you think a general audience should uh, understand here? Well, I think the, your audience probably understands this already, but the vast majority of violence is committed by people we know. And I think sometimes we all forget that. It's one of the reasons why in the mm. first part of that book, I started talking to, to people about how to identify, I called it character disordered, but people in your immediate sphere who could potentially be a threat, you know, before they become a threat, before they become a violent criminal actor, being able to notice them and being able to recognize them and set those boundaries, I think is really important. This is especially true for women, but it's true across the board for men. Every violent crime we can think of, the majority of, your, of attackers are known to the victim. So keeping that in mind, we can start to kind of patrol the boundaries of our own life and who we let in, the, who we let around our kids and people like that. And I think that's a very important part of self-defense. And one of the things I noticed when I set about writing the book was it's rarely talked about. So all the self-defense books and for various reasons, uh, self-defense instructors tend to focus on the stranger that's going to come up to you in the street that you have to deal with. And that is important, but they kind of skip over this aspect of people in your immediate family or friends or people that you let into your home. And so taking a step back, I think it's important to recognize that and be able to, to understand and see the signals that someone's putting off that before it turns violent. That's a part of the book that I that I was pretty happy that I was able to put inside there. I think that'll help out people quite a bit. Yeah, I think if if memory serves, the um, the breakdown was eighty twenty, right? It's like it's just twenty percent of violence is is stranger yeah. based. Yeah, that gives you a, a picture of just how much one can mitigate one's risk just by you know living a life that doesn't put you in the orbit of chaos, right? I mean, if you're not dealing drugs, if you're not, you know, if you're not hanging out in bars late at night, if you're not, uh, I mean, just, there's so many places where your, your risk of violence becomes predictably high and a different pattern of life predictably lowers it. And, and then it's just a matter of assessing the character of the people who you're letting into your world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I intentionally use the term character there because one of the things I try and point out is repeated error over and over again isn't an error. It's usually a character flaw. And it's, it's again, when mm. people keep repeating these, these errors and keep repeating these behaviors and we don't want to acknowledge it or we go in denial about that particular behavior until too late, until it actually becomes a physical situation. So being able to notice that I think is important. And 
what I set out to do when I wrote the book was, this is a book I could give to my kids, I could give to anybody, and it's going to tell them basically what they need to know, nuts and bolts for self-defense, um, and to be able to manage and deal with violence. And I put it in order of importance, and there's really only one acronym that I use in the book, and that is MIND. Uh, but we touched on it already. It begins with maturity, self-awareness, empathy, impulse control, being able to recognize when immaturity is around you or in your presence, being able to recognize it within ourselves, begin to try and develop more of that You know, as we age. And just that alone will make a huge difference in your statistical likelihood of being involved in any kind of violence. After maturity, I put intelligence and Intelligence is always important. Being able to think our way out of situations is just as important as being able to fight our way out of situations. Having those understanding of those primal instincts and an educated awareness of what to look for, that gets us to the end, which is noticing, noticing things around you, things that you should notice, things that you definitely want to pay attention to, signs that uh, pre-incident indicators that there are threats about or that someone's about to engage you in that kind of confrontation. And then last but not least, we get to the D part, which is distance management, determination. And the distance management is the critical part of all physical fighting. All, once it turns physical, being able to manage and control the distance means you can manage and control the encounter. And that's something, again, you're, you're going to get from combat sports. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's a great book, Matt. Thank you for writing it. And uh, I highly recommend that people pick it up. Again, the book is The Gift of Violence. and um, yeah, thank you for all that you have been doing and, and for all the advice you've given me over the years. You've really been a, a, um, a storehouse of wisdom for me on this topic. So it's great to have you. Thanks for having me on, Sam. World. I really appreciate it. <laughs>